Uh, so we're in Isaiah 49, Isaiah 49. Now I want you to think of, as we open this passage, imagine your sin comes home to roost. Uh, if you know what I mean by that, uh, there's fallout. Life falls apart, your sins. That besetting sin that dogs you from month to month throughout your life, maybe it's been there since your teen years, and, and it explodes in your life, and your life falls apart because your sin has come home to roost. Um, and the fallout is epic. Just imagine that the fallout is epic. What should be your attitude toward God? Should you reject God for being unfair? Is God unfair in all of this? Um, or uh, should you just give up all hope in God? You could turn that down a little. Should you just give up the, all hope in God um, because um, God is entirely fair? God is entirely fair to reject you. And... Um, and, 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 and you should suffer, and you really are finished. There really can be no hope. God is unrelentingly fair in this. Or are your circumstances just so hopeless that not even God can get you out of this? Well, as we look at this section, that, 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 that's Israel. They are in exile. And, and there's a sense in which they might argue, God, you're being unfair. Uh, that, you know, we're, we're being exiled for 490 years of unfaithfulness. That's generations that we're being punished for. You're being unfair. Or God, uh, we are such a wicked, perverse nation. You can take it down just a little bit more. Uh, we are such a wicked and perverse nation that, um, that, um, that, uh, that, that, that there really should be no hope. Uh, that there should be no hope for us because we are so wicked. You should not restore us as a nation. Or, look at the circumstances of Israel. They are in exile. How many nations go into exile, have their land just totally scorched back home, and then return and rebuild a nation? How many times has that happened in history outside of Israel? I mean, Israel's done it twice. Once after the Babylonian captivity and once again in the 20th century, just some 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Um, and, and so sometimes, you know, Israel might think, oh, our, our situation is bigger than God. And so what we're entering into in this next section of Isaiah is in, in chapters 49 through 52, the middle of 52, God's going to assure them, I've not cast you off. In chapters 52 through 53, what is the basis of this? How can God be just and yet return Israel? And the answer is going to be the great suffering servant, the Messiah, who, who, can, who can be none other than Jesus. And then in chapters 53 through 54, Israel will be called to participate by accepting this Savior. So there's actually something that Israel needs to do. They need to accept the Messiah when the Messiah comes. Um, now, before we read chapter 49, I want to point out two things with grammar here, if I could. Because this passage deals with the suffering servant, and that suffering servant could be taken to be Israel. And in the book of Isaiah, there is a situation in which Israel is a servant. That servant of God could be Isaiah, the prophet, or that servant of God could be the Messiah. And so throughout Isaiah, you have to kind of ask yourself, which servant is Isaiah addressing? Himself, the nation, or Jesus? And, and so in verse number 3, um, there is, there, there, the, the way our translation is, is, is a bit disputed. The, 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 how you would punctuate this in, in, in English is a bit disputed, and there are no punctuation marks in Hebrew. Um, uh, the, the grammar usually tells you, but here it's a little bit uncertain. Look at verse 3. It says, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. So if we just take that verse out of context and as it's translated, the servant being discussed here is Israel. I don't think it is. I, I think the servant being discussed is the great Messiah. Um, 
And, and, and part of the reason is because that, that, that servant is going to bring Israel back to God. And so it's somebody other than Israel. And so here, consider this punctuation, a hard stop after the word servant in verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in you I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. Returning back to the servant speaking there. So I'm, I'm going to read this today with a hard stop after the word servant. It's disputed. Um, and I'm not alone in this. Um, and in fact, I did not originate the idea. Um, but, but in my studies, that, that, makes the, that, that makes the best sense of the passage. And then again, in verse number 7, it almost seems like two persons of the Godhead are being referenced, and I believe it's just one. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. Uh, that, that, uh, that, that could be translated, uh, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, this same Holy One. Look at the end of the verse. Because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Um, in other words, I think the same person of the Godhead, God the Father, is being referenced there. So I'm going to read it that way rather than interject a second person of the Godhead, um, uh, such as the Son or the Spirit in, in that. Okay, so, and with that, I'm just saying chapter 49 really, I believe, is speaking of Jesus. I believe it's speaking of the Messiah. So let's read chapter 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant. Israel in whom uh, or Israel in you I will be glorified but I said I have labored in vain I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God and now the Lord says he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength he says it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, this same Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, and all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by strings of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains like a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sain, which would be down in Egypt. Sing, O heavens, here's a hymn in verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? 
that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow. I'm sorry, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will say in your ears, There's, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought these up? Or who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you. And I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer the mighty one of Jacob. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word today and we see Israel uh, in their state of destitution and Babylon captivity, uh, Lord, doubting that you remember them, we thank you, God, that you assure us that you do remember your people. Just as you remember Israel, you remember us. God, there's many applications to us and our sin and our walk with you and our suffering for our sin and in in our struggles. And God, there is a future for Israel and for us to which we look. And I pray, God, that you would just cement our hearts in that future. Help us, Lord, to see what lies ahead. And God, help us to live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin our study here, God's ultimate servant was called before birth to use his words to reach a nation. And there is some indication in the text that he's going to suffer failure, that he's going to feel like a failure, not the least of which will be his rejection by crucifixion. But, uh, but look at verse, uh, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. Now, this is the voice of the servant. I believe this is the voice of the Messiah, and that voice is going to switch. Occasionally, God's going to talk. The servant's going to talk. It'll go back and forth. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadows uh, of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in you I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says... 
It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, this same Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One who has chosen you. So we have the servant of the Lord here being addressed. The term servant can take on many different meanings in the Bible. Uh, the lowest of which would be a slave. And of course, as Americans, we have in our history the worst of slavery, uh, where you kidnap somebody and take them a totally against their will and make them a piece of property totally against their will. That is the lowest dregs of servanthood, of slavery. We would be wrong to import that into the history of the Bible because there is also bond service in which people would sell themselves with varying degrees of willingness. They would sell themselves into slavery, sometimes to become an indentured servant to learn a great trade, sometimes for uh, even personal, personal gain that they might attach themselves to a great house. And so this idea of bond service has varying degrees of willingness, varying degrees of desirability among ancients. And then finally, you have royal servants. Uh, we have taken that term servant in modern days and we've called them royal ministers. And you will have first servants or prime ministers. And so this servant of God might be thought more of in that direction, that he is a royal servant, a royal minister, a, a prime minister, if you will, of God. And um, there are different views on identifying who the servant is. Some say this servant is Israel. Uh, others would say it's the prophet Isaiah. I am taking this to be the Messiah himself. Now, if you do not go along with the, um, the grammar that I have in verse 3 uh, with that hard stop, then you might see that th this is a prophetic passage that kind of blends the three and you have to kind of uh, untangle or tease out which servant is being addressed. And you will see texts like that where the servant in a, in, a, in a single passage might be referencing Israel at one point and the prophet at another and the Messiah at yet another. This could be one such text. I just don't think it is. I think this text is speaking of the ultimate servant of God who offers deliverance to Israel from their sin. In verse number five, we see that Jesus, or this servant, brings Israel back to God. It says in verse 5, Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. See, at least in verse number 5, I'm not seeing God saying, I, I, I formed Israel to bring back Israel. I could see him saying, I formed Isaiah to bring back Israel as a prophet. I could see him saying, I formed the Messiah to bring back my people Israel. So certainly verse 5, I see the Messiah there. In verse 6, uh, we see that this Messiah, this servant, is going to not just be a light to Israel. That would be too small of a thing for him. He is going to be a light to the nations. Look at verse 6. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Now, to bring back a nation, I don't think that's too light of a thing. I think that's an amazing thing. But for this servant, God says, that's too light. I brought you to be a light for the nations. And that goes all the way back to Genesis 12 when God told to Abraham, in you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. This is not a new plan. 
This was laid out in Genesis 12, and it's just being recognized here once again that this Messiah is going to uh, bring in the nations. And then finally in verse number 7, we see the kings and princes prostrating themselves before this servant. Now, if the if, if a pastor of a church had a president come in and prostrate himself and worship the pastor, would that be a problem? That would absolutely be a problem. And it would be a problem for the prophets as well. Kings do not bow and worship prophets. They bow and they worship God Almighty. They bow and they worship this Messiah, this Son of God who is deity in and of himself. So, the last thing that we had noticed about this Messiah is that even he and his ministry felt at times as if his ministry was pointless. As if it wasn't getting through. Could you imagine having the disciples not understand you time and time and time again as you read the Gospels, the failure to grasp spiritual truth? Uh, the, the burden that our Lord and Savior had as he ministered. And, and ultimately his rejection. He was crucified. He was rejected by his nation. Put to open shame in rejection. In a shame and honor society, he was shamed, he was rejected, he was dishonored. So you have verse number four. But I said, this is the voice of the servant, I labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. There were times as Jesus ministered that he said, this is just worthless, this is just going nowhere. These people are rejecting truth. And, and so if you feel that, just understand your Savior has felt that as well. It's not an unchristian feeling. By the end of this message today, you're going to see that even Gentiles like us have a role to play. This is, an, this is a text about Israel, but Gentiles play a role. In this text, we're going to see today that Gentiles carry Israel back on their shoulders to, to their land. Israel, Gentiles bless them. We will witness uh, the, the Messiah. We will respect Israel. As the people of God, even as other nations abhor Israel, there are Gentiles throughout the world that respects Israel as the people of God. Like our Messiah, we're going to feel like at times our ministry is pointless in this world. So we both benefit from our Messiah and we mirror him in the world. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. That's what we do. And we experience some of the same feelings that he felt. And, and I would say this, the things that you do for Jesus Christ on this side of eternity, there's no way you can understand the importance of those things. There's no way. On this side of eternity, when you get into the presence of God, your eyes will be open, and you will see how you blessed God, how you even blessed his people, Israel, as Gentiles. God grants his servants the ability, his servant the ability to deliver the people of Israel who have been dispersed throughout the world. Uh, look at this regathering. And, and again, it mentions being hot and dry. Um, Israel, to get back to, <laughs> to their country, would have to cross through deserts. And, uh, and let's just read here through verse number 13. Verse 13 is a hymn of praise. Verse 8 says, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, so uh, God is giving this servant to the people. This servant is going to be the one who is going to make things right. It's going to be all based on this servant. Verse 9, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all the heights, uh, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. So it would normally be barren and bald. It's going to be full of pasture. 
Verse 10, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. This is in the arid Middle East. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. Now, if I had to go through the desert and you told me, well, the way you go is just follow this stream of water the whole way. That sounds really nice, right? Uh, yeah, just uh, that, that sounds uh, clear directions and just refreshment all along the way. Verse 11, and I will make all my roads a mountain. My highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Syene, which would be in the uh, area of Egypt. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Um, he, He talks about the streams in the desert guiding them. He, he talks about making his mountains a road, and, and that's a word picture I thought I'd just steal from. This is the Oregon Trail, uh, some of the remnants of the Oregon Trail out west. And, of course, if you, I would like to go out and visit this sometime, you know, some of these spots. And at times, they're very deep crags where the waters wash them. But, uh, you know, this is what wagons went over. Now, if, if I'm on the Oregon Trail and we're going out west, my eyes are up here. I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. You know, there, there's this thing called the Continental Divide or the Continental Rift or whatever that, you know, it's... How are we getting over that? Okay, um, and, and so, you know, you've got another scene like this. You've got the Oregon Trail here. But, you know, okay, we, did, we can't go left now. Uh, are we going right? Are we going through here? You know, how do we get through there? Uh, when you get to the mountains and, and God makes them into a road, uh, that there's no needing to find which pass is most bearable. There is a road. There is a way prepared for his people. That is the symbolism that, that God has here as he brings his pe- people back. And, of course, verse 13 is just a hymn. It's an eruption of praise. Why? Because God has, look at that last phrase, God will have compassion on his afflicted. These are afflicted people who deserve their affliction. They are judged by God. And yet, even as you are judged by God, even if you deserve your affliction... God has compassion, God comforts, God restores. Streams of water through deserts, roads through mountains, God will make a way. And, uh, and, and this is just the, the, the nature of our God. He, he, he comforts sinners. Um, uh, point number three here as we continue, Israel uh, feels forsaken, but we'll look and see her nation growing and honored by the Gentile nations around her in verses 14 through 21. But Israel said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. God asks this question. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on the, as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallow you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement, to be bereaved is to have, to have lost, to lose loved ones. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren. 
exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? So Israel is in a state of shock at God's restoration. In verse number 14, they said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. That's their attitude, their heart, their heart. What are they saying when they say, God has forsaken me? Well, they could be saying, God has forsaken us and it's not fair. Um, we are paying for the sins of our fathers. And, and keep in mind, the exile to Babylon was a 70-year exile and it was one year for every missing year where the land was supposed to lay at rest for 490 years. So there is a sense in which this generation is paying for the sins of its fathers. And, and so there is a, there's both this individual sense in which individually you do not pay for the sins of your father, but there's corporate guilt, guilt that we might have as a nation if you take America's history and slavery. Uh, that was evil. That was wicked. And so we have, a, we have a national guilt. And what you would expect to see in later generations, even 490 years later, like here in Israel, you would expect to see some kind of problem related to that, some kind of judgment. We are a nation that murders babies in the womb by the millions. Uh, so individually, you may or may not have done this. You may or may not have individual guilt. If, if your parents committed an abortion that wasn't you, you aren't guilty for their individual sin. But corporately as Americans, as a nation that does this, there's corporate guilt, there's corporate judgment that I believe is yet to be realized for the sins of our nation. And that's what they are facing here. And, and so they could be saying, God has forsaken us and it's not fair. We are in a hopeless situation, exiled from the land, unfairly by God. Or they are saying, we are a nation of idolaters. And it is right that God judge us. It is right that God forsakes us. In fact, there is no basis for God to receive us again. He has forsaken us and so be it. It's right. Of course, their hope is going to be in the Messiah who's going to die for their sins and remove their transgressions. So they could be saying, God has forsaken us. It's not fair. Uh, God has forsaken us and is extremely fair. Um, or God has forsaken us and it's so bad that not even God can help us out of this. It's it just, we're demolished. There's nothing back home. There's no nation. We're assimilating into new nations. We don't even know where we are. We don't even know who we are. And, and not even God can put Israel back together now. So that is the sentiment in verse 14. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And I believe we can carry this attitude as individuals where we reject God for being unfair or we see God as unrelentingly fair and there's no hope for us. Or we think that our circumstances are so bad, God can't even deliver us out of this problem. What do you do when you've ruined everything in your life due to your sin? Is there any way God would ever want to help you through that when you have been so filthy, so repeatedly evil? See, our God became human. God the Son, at least. Not the Father and the Spirit, but God the Son became human. He is our great high priest, and Hebrews 4 describes him this way. 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Let me repeat that. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You see, just as Israel is looking forward to this servant to deliver them, we look back to this servant, Jesus Christ, when he died for our sins, when he lived a perfect life on our behalf, and as he lived that perfect life, he was tempted in every respect like as we are, yet without sin. But he understands the weakness. And so it is in Jesus Christ that we find restoration. It is in Jesus Christ that we find hope. Yes, we suffer for sin, and yes, it's right that we do so. But God has not forgotten us. God has not abandoned us to that. God heals us, restores us. He shows mercy based on this servant. Turn to Jeremiah 33, if you could, please. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the next book of the Bible. Isaiah, uh, I mean, Jeremiah 33. In verse number three, I just want to show you, this is from the same historical setting. It's going to reference God delivering Israel from the Chaldeans. Jeremiah 33, verse three, God says, call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the house of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds. And against the sword, they are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. And to fill them with dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring it to health and healing. So God had hidden his face. I take that from Jerusalem. And now he's going to bring it to health and healing and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Now, you remember how this began? Call unto me, I'll show you great and mighty things that you do not know. This is the great and mighty thing, that God is going to cleanse them of all their sin, of all their guilt, of all their rebellion. They are going to be cleansed. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before the nations of the earth. This, this sounds preposterous when, when Israel is just a pile of rubble. But God said, you're going to be a beautiful joy and a glory in front of all the nations who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Continuing in Jeremiah 33, verse 10. Thus says the Lord, in the place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. This is a description of Jerusalem. It's a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth. That's the voice of amusement. And the voice of gladness. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. The voice of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. There is no house of the Lord there. But there is going to be. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. So Israel says, you've forgotten us. My God has forgotten me. He's forsaken me. And, and God says in verse 15, he uses a beautiful illustration. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child? Now, if you have a nursing child, that means you're a new mom. This is a new baby. 
And for most women, they're very much aware of the new baby. <laughs> In fact, their life centers on the new baby. Now, there are those, the Bible describes as without natural affection, there are those who abandon babies. And, and God even recognizes that in, in this verse. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. So if you think about a nursing mom, a mom with a nursing child, a new child, and you think of how riveted she is on that child, I am even more faithful to be riveted on you, Israel, than she is on that baby. My, you are absolutely the center of my focus and my attention, and though a nursing mom may fail to care for her baby, I will not fail to care for you. This is our God. This is his attitude toward Israel. This is his attitude, I believe, toward you as well. Though you feel forgotten by God, that is not the case. He is very much focused on you, calling you back to him. In verse 20, we see that while bereaved of children, uh, Israel suddenly finds that she has no place for them. Look at verse 20. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. (laughs) So you've got too many children and too small of a nation. Make room for me to dwell in. Verse 21, you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Israel is sitting here saying, where did all the Israelites come from? Well, that's going to get answered here in our final point. Whether through vengeance on all Israel's enemies or through willful submission of the nations, Israel's deliverance and restoration is orchestrated by God. Verse 22 Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. Now, there's times when God lifts up his hand to the nations and it's a fist to crush them. There's other times he lifts up to signal, come. Look at verse, uh, middle of verse number 22. And they shall bring your sons in their arms. And your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers. And their queens, your nursing mothers. So they've been caring for these Israelite children, raising them as foster fathers, as nurse moms, away from the land of Israel. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you. So they're going to honor you greatly. And I don't know if you've ever had anybody embarrass themselves trying to honor you. I mean, they like go too far and it's kind of a little creepy, whatever. Um, I think that's what we have here in verse 23. And they shall lick the dust of your feet. What's that about? Well, um, you know, as I understand it, when you lived in the land of sandals and it's sandy and dusty, you really wanted to wash your feet from time to time. And washing your feet was kind of a big deal. But, but it was also so demeaning. And, and it, again, you go into the Middle East, you don't want to sit like this at the, at the table with the bottom of your foot facing somebody. That is a huge insult. Uh, and, 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 I, and I accidentally did it once and I saw the reaction and I undid it. And the restaurant manager thanked me for it later, recognized that I undid my feet, um, put them back down. And I think that's because you walk through, again, ancient streets, you had no sewer. It was all dumped in the street. It went to the center canal. It washed out whenever you finally got a rain in the Middle East. And so you walk through a lot of dung. And, and so your feet are just filthy and dirty and corrupt. And so you want to wash your feet. You want to take off your sandals and wash your feet when you enter somebody's house. And, and it was even too demeaning in some cultures and some ti- at some times to have a servant wash your feet. Okay? And yet here, <laughs> you've got kings wanting to lick the dust of your feet off. 
That's just awkwardly overdoing it. Okay, so I, I think that this is, a, this is a figurative language that's just saying they're going to fall all over themselves to try to honor you. It's almost going to be embarrassing. Okay, um, and, and so um, then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And then you've got this rhetorical question, can pray be taken from the mighty or captives of a tyrant rescued? In other words, you know, once the prey has you in its jaws and it's clamped down on your backbone, is there really any saving? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors. This is the language of, uh, of, um, of siege warfare when you get trapped in your city by, by troops and there's nothing to eat. You eat the flesh of people who have most recently died. Um, at least I assume you haven't killed them to, to, to get their flesh. It says in verse 26, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They shall be drunk with the blood, with their own blood as with wine. I take that to be that as soon as somebody dies, you drain the blood and you drink it because you have no source of water, no source of hydration. Uh, just, a, just an awful, awful. And so this is not God signaling the nation saying, hey, come help. This is God destroying enemies. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So you have God with Gentiles. In some cases, he's got the Gentiles carrying your children on their arms, on their shoulders, carrying your sons in their arms, bringing them into the land. And in other cases, you have them eating their own flesh, drinking their own blood, uh, dying an awful death because they are sworn enemies to Israel and sworn enemies to God. In verse number 22, God works in the heart of Gentile nations and, and, and he's doing, basically, um, verse number 22 and 23 answers verse number 21. In verse 21, I was bereaved, and exiled. But who has brought up these children? Who, who raised my children for me? Verse 21 says in the middle of verse, they shall bring to you your sons and daughters. Verse 22, kings shall be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers. And, and so what you have here is you have uh, Gentile nations caring for the people of Israel, willfully caring for, willfully honoring. It speaks of spiritual transformation where enemies become servants of Israel and servants of God. In verse 24, the question is pondered, can anyone take captives back from a captive land like that? Can anyone take the prey out of the mouth of the predator? And again, God says, yes, I can do that. And this was written before the return from Babylon. And so Israel is just this unique nation. I mean, I, perhaps it's helped, happened elsewhere in history, but it's a nation that was totally divested of its land. Its land was totally wiped out. Nobody lived there, and after the Babylon captivity, they re-inhabited it. That is amazing, historically amazing. It's happened twice. They came back again in the early 1900s, and many Gentile nations helped them in that movement. Now, I want to address prophecy here real quick um, because uh, one of the commentators said this. He said, if these statements were intended to be a prediction of literal events in 538 and 445 BC, these statements are clearly out of proportion. The prophet is sadly mistaken. But he says there is good reason to understand that these statements were never to be in intended to be taken literally. The focus is now on the return to God. And Isaiah is speaking figuratively. So he says, okay, these are all nice words. It didn't really happen that way in the 5th century, in the 6th century B.C. This is figurative language. And we can just leave it there. 
I disagree. <laughs> I just disagree. Prophecy is, is not about one, partic- one particular point in time. Uh, prophecy can be about a range of time, something, a trajectory toward a conclusion of all time. I like to illustrate it with Daniel 12, where it describes the day of the Lord. It says there will be a time of twelve trouble. And it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, 2. You can read that. I've, I've referenced it in your notes. You can read it later. But it talks about a resurrection where at the end there's going to be a resurrection and some will be raised to life, others will be raised to death. How long should that take? Five minutes? Ten minutes? A day? When you read Daniel 12, it sounds rather punctiliar, like a little point in time that there's going to be a resurrection and some are going to go to life and some are going to go to death. But it could also be a range of time, like 1,007 years plus. Listen to Revelation describe this. Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a 1,000 years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1,000 years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a 1,000 years. So Daniel says we're going to come to the end. There's going to be a time of great tribulation, and the righteous are raised to life. The wicked are raised to death. He makes no statement about the amount of time. But as Revelation unfolds that, we see that there's a resurrection of the righteous who reigned for a thousand years, and then there is a resurrection of the unjust who are judged a thousand and seven years later. Uh, So there's more length to it. Daniel was not lying to us. He was just not giving us the full detail, the full picture. I, I, I liken prophecy to mountains like this. Now, I think I took this picture in Idaho. Um, this is the Rocky Mountains, okay? And I, I have an African pastor friend who I hope we bring over here some year. We've tried a couple of times. And when he comes, I want to take him to the Rocky Mountains. Now, if I take him to this place, I could say I took him to the Rocky Mountains. But did I really? The Rocky Mountains are 3,000 miles long. There's over 100 peaks that are above 12,000 feet above sea level. And, and so when I talk about the Rocky Mountains, I'm not talking about these three peaks or four peaks that we see here in this picture. I'm talking about thousands of peaks, right? I'm talking about a long distance. And that's what prophecy is as we look at this end time. It's like saying the Rocky Mountains. Uh, yeah, you know, we went to the Rockies. Well, we went to one area, but they're, they're, once you get to them, there's just so much more expanse and so much more time. Likewise with prophecy, and, and, and so as, as, we, as we look here at what, what Isaiah is saying is going to happen to Israel, uh, did it all happen in the 6th century B.C.? Did it all happen in the 5th? No, it didn't all happen. It started to unfold. And then we saw other hap- events happen, including the restoration of Israel 70 years ago. And we aren't setting dates for the end times, but we are seeing a trajectory that, that, that this prophecy by Isaiah is yet unfolding, that there truly will be such numbers in Israel and such honor among the nations for Israel and such punishment of her enemies that it will be glorious. 
you and I, I believe, have been those, like those kings and queens uh, bringing the children in our arms, bringing the children uh, on our shoulders. We have sought to bless Israel. Um, we, Genesis 12.3 says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will, those who dishonor you, I will bring a curse upon them. I believe that still applies to today. And uh, if you want to call me a Zionist because of that, I fine. But uh, I, I believe that we'd do well to bless Israel. However, we have to be wise and we have to be careful. We as Gentiles do not want to bless Israel if Israel is doing something that is not morally right. And so that requires carefulness. That requires research in the things and the ways in which we support Israel. For a Cornerstone Baptist Church, we honor a local church in Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Assembly. We send them money every single month. When I was there the first time about 10 years ago, I, 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 I stayed after because they had a little soup lunch. And I was talking to a member of the church there, and she said, well, you know, life in Jerusalem is very hard for Christians. There is persecution. People do reject you because you're a Christian. And, and it's expensive to live here, so we served this lunch, and it was a very, very small lunch. And so when I came home, we talked about it, and we decided we would send a monthly blessing to the Christians at that church. And I sent in a note. I said, and if you'd like to use it just to bless the people there, even for that lunch that you have, and then the next time I went and the next time I went, that lunch was much more expansive. So I'd like to think that our funds are being used to feed Christians on a Sunday afternoon. That, like, we have our little breakfast at 9. They have their, uh, it, it should be Sabbath afternoon on Saturday um, after their service. I would like to think that we are blessing them in that way. We get that from Romans 15 where it talks about the offering to Jerusalem and it says that the Gentiles were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. For if Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. You saw that there was an attack in Israel yesterday, and 300 plus have died, and over 1,000 are injured, or 900. I forget the account that I last saw. There's a major attack. Um, as Christians, we don't know what we should do politically. We, we don't know the ins and the outs of that. We, we pray for Israel. Uh, but, but if we are to do something, we can work uh, toward and through the local church in Israel. And so we continue to send that monthly gift. If, if, you're, if your heart is, is pricked by the events in Israel and you're like, you know, there might be some bigger needs there, then maybe you want to add to that gift. Maybe you want to designate something. I, I always go back to Romans 15, verse 27. Um, indeed, we owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings... We ought to be of service to them in material blessings. And um, I believe that the Abrahamic covenant is still in honor today. And so even as this text talks about kings and, and queens bearing their children back to them, Gentiles blessing Israel, I believe we played a part in that. Again, not setting dates, just recognizing a trajectory in world history. So Israel is sinned. That's today's text. But God is going to deliver Israel from their punishment of captivity through his servant. Today's passage speaks of the great servant of God, Jesus Christ, Messiah, meaning anointed one. He was called of God. He did not come with an army. He came with a tongue, speaking truth. Though Israel this week is going to answer Hamas with the iron sword, God's word is still the most powerful element in creation today. 
It cuts through all of the moral clutter that mankind erects. Like Jesus, you have been called by God. Like Jesus, you were called before your birth. You, like Jesus, have been given the word of God and you have been charged with the task of speaking it. You can see a soul saved from hell. You can see a brother or sister in Christ saved from sin's designs in his or her life by speaking truth to your brother or sister. And you can light your own pathway by speaking the truth of the Word of God to yourself when you're making your choices in this dark world. In 2,000 years, actually 2,500 years, not much has changed. Mankind is still willful and sinful. God's word cuts through the issues and brings the power of God to bear on every situation. Do you know God's word? Do you read it? Do you quote it? Do you reference it when you are discussing important matters with yourself, with your family, with your friends? Whether you're Israel or whether you're an individual, God is not being unfair if you're receiving paybacks for your sin. And God is not unrelentingly fair in the sense that you must always pay continually for your sins. He sent his servant, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. He understands your weakness. You can repent, you can draw near to God, and you can see God build you up in Christ. And yes, God is big enough to deliver you. Out of the hand of the mouth of the predator, out of your captor, God can deliver you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your servant. We thank you for deliverance in Jesus Christ. Lord, we own our sin. (laughs) We are sinners through and through. We confess this. We pray that you would deliver us from sin, and we know how you do this. You do this through your servant, Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus. We're going to remember him, his death on our behalf. And God, we thank you for Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen.